This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 185. Hello, veterinary friends. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Lava, or also Lava Check. She's the author of Stillness and Wilderness, A Bold Ride from Despair to Deep Wisdom and Love. She's a form, former deadly disease investigator, community health leader, and veterinarian. She helped prepare for and respond to the pandemic. Elizabeth was pushed into a rapid transformation that led her to powerful healers, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, spiritual practices, and deep wisdom. She is called the healer of healers, and she's a thought leader on intertwining of mental health and spiritual growth. She bridges the world as a transformational health, life, and spiritual emergence coach, and she provides for healthcare providers, veterinarians, and conscious leaders who hire her to support them and return to wholeness through deep self-care and transition to a different career to find inner joy and peace. Welcome to the podcast. That was a, that was a mouthful, Elizabeth. I'm so happy to have you. It's a pleasure and honor to be here, Julie. Thank you so much for creating the space. Yeah, I'm excited to hear what you have to say and what you can teach us. We talked a little bit prior to this podcast, so I know a little bit about you, but because the listeners don't, can you just give us a little background and tell us how you started and maybe your veterinary journey and how you ended up where you are today? Oh, thanks, Julie. When, I just wanted to also thank you for creating a space to um, help veterinarians be as healthy as possible and hopefully help help them stick into the career that they started and loved so much. <laughs> yeah, I'm really passionate about that. You know, I, I really think that people like you can help us get a well-rounded mental mental health is what we want. Yeah. Um, thanks. So um, I went to vet school at Colorado State University, and uh, my intention was to become a large animal veterinarian. And um, about halfway through, I thought, oh, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to be tough enough to, to do what I wanted to do is be a large, yeah, large animal, animal vet. vet is no joke. <laughs> I always yeah. take my hat off to those people because I thought <laughs> I wanted to do that too. And I was like, that is a lot. Well, we certainly, you know, I worked in a small animal practice before I went to vet school and I, uh, I have bow my hat off, take my hat off to small animal veterinarians because it's, uh, it's a different ball of stress. Um, um, I just love being outside so much and I grew up around horses and, um, I just, the salt of the earth folks and seeing the animal on the farm when the environment they're in, for me, I felt like I could be a more powerful veterinarian because the environment infects them so much. So, um, and the small animal veterinarians, they don't really have that luxury of seeing them, the animal in their home. So, um, but about, see, I think it was my junior year of vet school, uh, we all had to take an epidemiology class and there was a specific lecture about disease outbreak investigation um, that I found fascinating. And I'm like, oh, maybe I could do that. So I went up to the professor, Dr. Mo, Mo Solomon, <laughs> veterinary <laughs> epidemiologist. And I said, can I do that for a living? Of course he lit up like, oh yeah. good. Uh, one of my like students wants to Someone that's interested, field. yeah. <laughs> so he said, of course you can. Um, and so uh, my senior year, I went and did an, um, uh, like a rotation. I created my own rotation through something called a step program, which I don't know if they call it that anymore. But you spend basically, instead of doing rotation anesthesiology or dermatology, you go and spend it at CDC Atlanta. And actually, um, they assigned me to the hepatitis branch. And I was like, can you get any further away from animal health? <laughs> so I told the lady who's in charge of the whole program. And I actually went on a grant from the AVMA. Um, they, they paid for, I, I can't remember some of my expenses. Uh, it didn't cover it all, but it was uh, really helpful for me nice. to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I expressed it to her that I didn't really like being assigned to the hepatitis branch. And so an epi aid started and <clears throat> we went to Rhode Island during um, high risk for Eastern equine encephalitis. And I was like, yay, mosquito borne equine encephalitis, I'm on board. So um, I got on a, literally she called me into her office and she said, you need, if you wanna go, you need to be packed and at the Atlanta airport in three hours. And I was like, how long have you be gone for? She goes, I don't know, no longer than your whole assignment will be, but it could be the whole time, rest of your time. <laughs> okay. Oh, nice. 
And so some scientists, one from Atlanta and one from uh, Fort Collins uh, that we we merged and met <clears throat> there in Rhode Island. And it was a great experience, but I, I wasn't really quite sure that I wanted to have that type of a lifestyle. <laughs> Where you had to drop everything and fly away. Yes, exactly. Away. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, when I was in private practice, so I was like, then I met with veterinarians. So when I was in my senior year, I was like, well, what do I do now? Do I go into private practice or do I go into epidemiology. So I was on the fence. And so I met with veterinarians that were in the in the field in the field actually doing epidemiology work either at the Department of Agriculture or for a public health agency. And they all said, go be a private practice veterinarian first. It'll make you a much more powerful public health veterinarian. And I was like, okay, good. And that way too, I give it, I give the equine, you know, large animal practice a go. I try. <laughs> and um, it works well, I ended up in an area that was very underserved. And so my boss was awesome and he mentored me well, but it was too much for me. I was on call, you know, every other week and almost every single night I was going out for multiple hours every night. And I was already yeah. so exhausted. And I happened to have landed in Western Oregon where um, it was the wettest winter on record in Oregon. That doesn't and sound fun. So you're always out in the cold rain. Yeah. And lots of mud and really lots really funny stories around mud. And I could handle the mud until it was like, I felt like it was in a James Harriet story. Like I'm, I'm pulling this calf out of a cow at like two o'clock in the morning with freezing rain going in my ear and I'm laying in a ditch in the mud. Cause right. The cow is like laid in a cool patch of mud because it was distressed, you know? And I'm like, okay, I am not as tough as James Harriet. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, not, this is not my thing. No. And I was like, this is, sucks because I actually really love the animals and people, but I just, and I had no balance to my life. Okay. So <clears throat> I always, always trying back then to like, okay, I didn't get a chance to do any major exercise this morning. Like I literally just packed my truck up and started going out in the field and I had getting exercised by moving around with the animals, but it's pretty limited. It's not enough for stress relief though. And so I would like pull over on the side of the road and go for a 20 minute walk, you know, in my boots and my muddy jeans, you know? So I was already trying to do that, trying to find balance, but I had this one night or I had this meltdown. <laughs> I think we've all been through those, right? Meltdown nights. <laughs> so kudos to those veterinarians out there that have these. I'd already been out in two emergency calls at o'clock, one at two o'clock and here it's four o'clock in the morning. And I'm like going through my hamper <clears throat> and I'm trying to find the, the least muddiest jeans I could find. Can you hear oh, me okay? Yeah, yeah, I can I now. You yeah. just froze up for a minute, but now yeah. I got you back. Okay. So I was trying to find the least muddiest jeans I possibly could. And I pulled them out and they were like stiff on one end, wet <laughs> on the other. And I just swung the jeans in the air and smashed them on the floor and said, I've had it. I'm done. <laughs> and then I calmed down, of course. And then, and then, I don't know, another month later, the veterinarian I was working for, bless his heart. I totally adored that mentor, but he pushed me to do sperm collection on uh, semen collection on stud. He was like pushing me to go do it. And I had just heard a story about a veterinarian who was doing the same thing. And the mare that the stallion was, was mounting kicked and kicked him in the chest and killed him. Oh Lord. And I was like, Scary. I'm not doing that. And he says, yes, not you are. <laughs> huh? Yes. It's not worth it. And I said, I'm not doing that. Yes, you are. I'm like, guess what? I'm done. I told him, I that's it. I'm done. And he was like, what? And I'm like, I'm done, done. I'll let you know what, how long, I'll, much longer I'll be here. So I had lots of like kind of dark moments. I'm like, oh my God, I went to veterinary school. What am I going to do? Da, 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 you know? And I was like, wait a second. I said public health. Okay. That was your original love. Yeah. That was my initial spark. Right. And right. just so, so then I started um, with very little money in the pocket. Like I just basically took a bunch of part-time jobs and was taking uh, part-time low income jobs um, and then taking public health um, coursework and got out of veterinary practice. And then eventually it was really funny. It's a long story, but I basically became a, an epidemiologist at a state health department and um, also underpaid, but at least more than minimum wage. <laughs> and I ended up being promoted to be the state public health veterinarian um, after a, a couple of years. And it was after September 11th and the anthrax letters hit. And 
I was given pretty large roles to coordinate um, response and preparedness uh, in the kind of bioterrorism pandemic preparedness world. And then uh, a public health veterinarian left her role and they just said, do you want it? And I was like, what do you mean do I want it? Isn't <laughs> And I was like, seriously, I want to be a state perfect. public health veterinarian. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, sometimes the universe just kind of lines up. Um, I had Things no intention when I was supposed to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I became a public health veterinarian and I did that for um, in the state of Arizona and state of Colorado for many years. And, um, and eventually I ended up realizing that I was also having a pretty stressful job being on call. Now I wasn't laying in the mud at two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, but I was, my, my life was out of balance again. And I kind of was like, kind of was done with the whole, infectious disease epidemiology, living and breathing it, you know, and mm -hmm. I enjoyed it, but it was, I, I wanted something different. And I actually, what I really wanted is connect with other people on a deeper level and connect with communities on a, and so I ended up applying for our local public health jobs. And <laughs> I came to this beautiful place in the San Juan mountains, which is in Southwestern Colorado. And I was just doing the interview for experience. Cause I thought there's no way they're going to hire me because I'm not a nurse because right. they really like hiring nurses at these little tiny rural areas. And they offered me the job. And I was like, get out. <laughs> I get to get out of the big city in the rat race. I am there. So I became a public health leader at a local level. And it was so fascinating because I got to see not just like these like epidemiology, but more like big community health problems. But my favorite part about after a while became when people would walk through the door and just need help. And like, I like have these one people, on one. huh? One, one on, on one. one. Like yes. you could relate to them because that's what you said you were looking for. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because Julie, you know, it's like, you know, those one-on-one -on -one moments you have with owners and you're just having this deep connection and you're witnessing that human animal bond and you're supporting both of them and that bond. And it's so powerful. And so I think, you know, that part of me has always been there. It's never, never went away when I was this like epidemiologist at a high level. And then I got to be at a local level and then <sighs> I was in charge. I basically, you know how a lot of times a person comes into an area and they have this outsider lens is actually both um, you bring in kind of uh, a new perspective, where, um, but also at the same time, you don't understand the history and the why things are the way they are. So as I was a public health leader, my second year into that, I became chair of the West Central Public Health Partnership, which is six county health department directors that meet quarterly. And they talk about community health at a regional level. Mm. And I was watching things and I was like trying to not speak and just learn and listen, which was not easy for me at that stage. That was- <laughs> you're, so not, you're not that type of person that doesn't want to chime in, huh? Well, I was, I was shaped to be a subject matter expert and be like, channel nine news tonight. Oh, right. I'm like talking about West Nile virus and rabies and all these things. And so now it was not that I had to just listen a lot because this was a very new role for me and understanding the community. And I have to win trust from the locals, county commissioners, town council, citizens that people are walking through the door. They're like, who's this big city veterinarian? <laughs> why did they hire, why didn't they hire a nurse, you know? So it took a long time to win trust. But anyway, I was at one of these meetings and I saw that mental health and substance use was the biggest issue. We weren't addressing it. And I was like, what's going on there? And um, so I brought it up with him. We all took turns being chairs, leaders of kind of managing the meeting and, and the discussion. And so after two years, I was like, my first day, I was like, hmm. <laughs> I promised myself that once it became chair, I would not let us ignore mental health and substance use. And they all just looked at me like, oh no. <laughs> they didn't want to go there, huh? But they had a really good reason for it. Julie, they're like, you know, we don't have money for that. That's the center for mental health problem, not ours. And I went, uh, I get it. So in the state of Colorado, and I don't know what it's like in other states, but I think it's pretty similar where you have social services or human services and they get the funding in for mental health. And so they do things like create what they call regional behavioral health authorities. And so happens to be that the same six county region where the health department directors is how the state also broke up 
the uh, Behavioral Health Authority or Center for Mental Health that was regional. And they were getting all the money to address it and we didn't have it. So we were focusing on physical health. And I'm looking at it from the big 10,000 foot perspective as best I can, maybe a thousand foot level. Hold on, mental health affects physical health. Physical health affects mental health. We cannot silo this anymore. We have got to start thinking about this and dressing it. I'm like, well, we don't have the money. And I was like, okay, well, what if I look for a grant? What if a grant comes along? And they're like, fine. And so they're thinking, I know they're thinking that's not going to come along. Well, lo and behold, about a month, I don't know, maybe two months later, got a grant. grant comes available. Of course. So the federal government had noticed how many people are going to ERs with substance use issues, mental health crises, suicide rates, all this. And so they, the centers for mental, the centers for Medicare and Medicaid had an innovative grant out and wasn't for all states. Colorado was one of the states that got it, one of only a handful of states. And so then when the, the whole state got it, they were like, which local health departments want to work on this? And I was like, yeah. you volunteered. <laughs> so I applied for it. I didn't get it at first. And that's a whole another story in itself. But eventually I got it by being the squeaky wheel. I'm like, what do you mean I didn't get it? <laughs> and I eventually got it. And um, so um I basically was really shocked at um, how hard it was to move the needle, you know, to make a change. But the best thing that came out of that was looking at, um, at, at, at the whole system. It basically, we ended up developing a steering committee, the, the three hospitals, the Centers for Mental Health, those six health departments, and then local clinics that were like federally funded. Um, we all came together and then I was like, we need to have EMS and law enforcement here because they're, they're the ones that are on the ground. And the reason why I totally identify with them was because when you're a large animal veterinarian, you're like the, you're the EMS, you're the, <laughs> you're, you're the, to the rescue. Yeah. Yeah. And you're the ER too, you right, know? Right. So it's like, we need, so they were included some, I think they should have been included more. And I actually don't know if that steering committee is going on because in the middle of that, I ended up having personal losses that were so profound because I was pushing myself too hard. Mm. So my personal life just crumbled. So because I was pushing myself so hard with this grant and then another grant that I had for substance use prevention in, in youth that was uh, marijuana tax funded. So I had those two grants on top of being a health department director and I was originally leading that mental health one. It was too much for my personal life and my personal life fell apart and I became clinically depressed and I was halfway through the three-year grant and I, I, and I, I, there was a deep knowing that this was happening for me for a reason. And it was, it created deep empathy for me for those who are going through deep, dark mental health or substance use issues because it was so painful. And it actually manifested itself in a, in a physical level too. Um, my whole body was aching, I couldn't sleep. Um, and then we were trying to function in the world with little or no sleep. I was sleeping like two. So I had about eight months stretch of only about two or three hours um, uh, of sleep or no sleep. And I, ha I got to the point where I started, I had an anxiety attack and I describe it in my book. And at the very beginning of the book, you see that I have suicidal ideation. And it was so, and I was like, oh, what is this? I so am going to get You're out. working on that mental yep. health, all yep. that. And then this happens to you. And so it's kind of like this perfect storm of, oh, now I get it. Now this is what's happening to me. Yeah. Yeah. So the doctors were, and I am come from a family of physicians and nurses and um, both the, one of the very, very deeply empathic, compassionate, uh, wise physicians in my family was like, you need to go on antidepressants. And so was one of my doctors telling me that. And I took the antidepressants home and I looked at the bottle and I saw I swallowed a pill and I was crying and I was like, I don't want to take the antidepressants. And I looked at the side effects. It has like stomach issues and I already have a stomach problems. And I really liked running and exercise. That was one of my healthy coping, you know, yeah. as long as it's balanced. Yeah. Right. But the other thing was the withdrawal symptoms were the same as what I was experiencing already. And I'm like, this is just delaying it. Isn't that crazy? I know. I, I've always thought that too. It's like you go on antidepressants but you can't come off of them because then it throws you back into the depression. Yeah. And I guess there is a way that you wean yourself off of it. 
so that, and so one of the doctors was really sweet. He's like, Elizabeth, he goes, what you're experiencing is not like chronic depression throughout your life. It's, this is something you have good reason for it to be depressed. And he said, um, this is just a crutch to get you through for a while. It's going to be okay. And it will wean you off. And I, I was, I was like this really coming from a, like a German stoic family. And I was like, I'm going to figure out another way. So, um, and then I, I had a whole series of events that I'll, that I describe in the book that I'll just skip over, but basically ended up having what's called a spiritual emergence, which there's lots of, there's a couple of different definitions for that. And one of my favorite simple ones is, uh, that I heard from a licensed clinical social worker, who's a counselor and he's deeply spiritual. His simple definition is pretty cool. It's like, you are having a moment where you're realizing what your, what your, circumstances are outside of you are not fulfilling and you start searching beyond the material world you start spiritually exploring okay and you're basically trying to find a spiritual practice or a path that's right for you so that's his definition so so um i basically ended up getting through the three years having a spiritual awakening realizing that i wanted to help people directly in a new way taking health coaching, life coaching. And then I was led to something called a spiritual emergence coaching course through Emma Bragdon. And she has a PhD in transpersonal psychology. And when I started taking her course, I was like, oh, wow. No wonder why I had this profound spiritual awakening after clinical depression. It totally makes sense. And no wonder I'm having a hard time recovering still, even though I have my own spiritual path, now that's right for me. I can see why it's taking me a while to recover from the loss, grief, trauma. I had a bunch of trauma too. And so, um, and during that, I, I'd love to read the definition of spiritual emergence from Emma Bragg, if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. I got it. Yeah, Cause this my... is something I don't know a lot about. So I'm excited about this. Okay. So I, I really didn't understand was what I was experiencing and still, I started reading Dr. Emma Bragg's work. And her definition of spiritual emergence is the process of personal awakening into a level of perceiving and functioning, which is beyond normal ego functioning. The process may first include one of the following phenomena, out-of-body experiences, precognition, clairvoyance, astral travel, and perceptions of auras. At its peak, spiritual emergence is the experience of the ultimate unity of all things, a mystical experience, emerging with the divine, which transcends verbal description. Among the positive effects of the process are increased creativity, feelings of peace, and an expanded sense of compassion. And just to honor her, Emma, uh, that's paraphrased for a much longer explanation. And so what I experienced is something called a Kundalini rising and I had learned about chakras and Kundalini while taking a yoga instructor course. I'm a yoga instructor. Um, and I took that course a few years prior to my awakening. And just, I just wanna pause. And so people ask me, what is a spiritual awakening? And when I Google, it, it's really funny. I don't even really like all the definitions. So here's mine. <laughs> this is yours, yeah. <laughs> mine is basically you're realizing that you are not this body, you are a, a soul. And your body is this beautiful temple where your, your, your spirit is temporarily housed and really becoming a deep, deep, deep connection, like awareness of your soul. And there's so much more beyond that in terms of like, you're realizing that you having a connection with the source that created you in the earth. And that is such a profound experience and can be quite frightening at the beginning when that happens. Because if you're like me, a rigid left brain scientist, <laughs> I, like when I was taking and the other structure, think about right, yeah, I'm like, uh, chakras, kundalini, what's this woo woo stuff? Yeah, it uh, sounds like woo woo, yeah, yeah, it's not. I had to experience it for myself, which is really right. funny because I've witnessed that in a lot of other people. Oh, you just won't believe it until you experience it yourself. Uh, yep, and then it happened to me. So, um, I had to experience, um, that for myself to realize those concepts are not, not new age and then to turn to Eastern wisdom to understand what was happening for me. So I'd like to explain what Kundalini is. Um, okay. This is a quote from Steve Taylor who wrote a book called The Leap and he, he experienced a Kundalini uh, rising or awakening as well. In the Indian spiritual traditions of yoga and Tantra, 
sudden energetic awakenings are depicted as kundalini awakening. Kundalini derived from the Sanskrit word kunda, meaning to coil or to spiral, is an intense and explosive form of energy that lies dormant in the lowest of the seven chakras. So as a, when I took that course, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. And I, I, that course was designed for me to like support people in a group. And I do plan to do that on this platform called a clubhouse. And, um, but I really wanted to do it individually. We talked you and I talked about that power right. as a veterinarian, that, that, you know, one-on-one yeah, connection. That connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I told Emma, that's what I wanted to do. And she goes, oh, you can't do that. I'm like, why not? She goes, well, you need to become a certified life coach. And I was like, great. Okay. Watch me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just basically said I took a health coaching course already and I'm doing that. But I realized when I was taking a health coaching course that someone's health is much shaped, much more than just their, the food and their exercise and their sleep. It has to do with everything else in their life. Right. And then I really wanted to become a life coach in order to be a really powerful, holistic health coach. So I said, which course do you recommend? (laughs) And she goes, I actually do have done the research and this is the group. So I took a course from Life Purpose Institute and I also took a spiritual coaching course from them as well. And so in, in a group format, a spiritual emergence coach facilitates individuals sharing stories and resources in a supportive environment. That group then thus provides encouragement, support for further personal and spiritual growth. Um, A spiritual emergence or emergency, which I'll define as well too, if we have time, um, can cause a shift of personal values into yearning to help others in a new way or to find a new life purpose. Sharing with others in a group can assist in finding meaning and direction in the experience. Meeting personally with a certified life coach with spiritual emergence coaching skills can deepen this experience. So I want to pause for a moment and say that sharing, you know, dark mental health or substance use issues is already really personal. Yes. And then when you have something really beautiful happening that is out there, it's also really scary to share. So that's why I know that we need more individual spiritual emergence coaches. And so I actually like have the end of my book, a list of, you know, go to integrative mental health for you.org and a practice webpage. And there's a list of there's a directory. And I think there's actually a couple in there that are licensed counselors too, you know, and they're spiritual emergence coaches. And so one of my roles as spiritual emergence coaches, uh, people who are having this type of experience are pretty scared about sharing this with anybody. And some of them are having a, such a, a radical uh, experience that they really need a counselor, not a coach. And they need a counselor who has deep spiritual competency, meaning they can recognize spiritually transformative experiences. They can recognize a spiritual awakening, or at least they can just be fully present with helping somebody tap into their spiritual practices or side to get through whatever challenges and not have any biases related to what their own belief system is and supporting that person. And also recognizing things like spiritual bypassing. I'm throwing out a lot of phrases here, but um, uh, it's a lot for this one podcast, but spiritual bypassing is where you're like basically using spiritual concepts to, uh, and practices to avoid core personal work in which you really need to be doing in the three-dimensional world, both in relationships and work and responsibilities and all that. So and how you're interacting with others. So, um, uh, yeah, so that's my journey in a nutshell. Let me me ask you something that just occurred to me while you were talking. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a spiritual awakening, which Mm -hmm. makes total sense to me. Is this something that you would experience first and then go get, go get your coach to get you through it? Or is this something that you can seek? Like if you say, I want to have a spiritual awakening, like, like I'm a Christian, so I believe in, you know, spirituality and, you know, and, and meditation. And like, I I've studied a lot of that, but is it something that you just experience? And then you go, oh, I think I'm having a spiritual awakening. I I need to figure this out. Or is it something you can say, I'm having a rough life right now. And I would love to learn about this and, and help myself have an awakening. Like that's, is it one or the other or both? It's both. Okay. So I think each soul is going to have a different experience, uh, whether or not that what's going to happen first, 
or if they're kind of meshed. And that's kind of what happened to me. Like it was very like at the same yeah. time, you know, it's forced upon me, but also then I just decided to keep going to go with it. Yeah. Don't resist that momentum of spiritual growth. That's was being forced upon me mental and spiritual and personal and growth. But I think that, um, because we, you know, all of us experience this is interesting because I had this really powerful moment with some, my partner and a friend this weekend, we're reflecting on really tragic moments that each one of us have had and how we've risen out of it. And uh, my friend said, you know, I think what I heard is that everyone has about three really super dark, challenging things in their lifetime. And so we're all going to face it. Right. <laughs> and so I think it really helps a lot to tap into whatever your personal growth that's already worked. And if it's not seeking for others. And so I think most of us do seek. And even though we're not realizing it. And once you start seeking, my, my word of caution is, use discernment. And the lovely thing about your listeners are, is that they're veterinarians. They've got good discernment mm -hmm. and yeah, can, they're good, thinkers. good thinkers, analytical minds, open-hearted. You know, we didn't get into this field to make a bunch of money. We, we went out in the world to help animals and people. Right. And it's hard. Like, I'm sorry, but as a veter private practice veterinarian, you know, and I've been out in the field, private practice veterinarians after I became public health veterinarian, both to keep my skills to remind me what it's like to be a veterinarian, but also during investigations. And I'm like, just always bow down. And my, my friends from vet school and former colleagues, you know, I'm just like, bow down. Like it's so challenging every day. You know, you're wanting so much to help that human animal bond, that animal getting through and tapping into your own, no matter what happens, no matter if that animal survives, no matter what that interaction is with that, with that client, that you are really doing an, an amazing job just by showing up each day and being a veterinarian. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think sometimes we get so hung up on the outcome and it's not really always about that. It's about you showing up and being there and helping and offering what you can offer, which sometimes isn't a lot, but you can offer emotional support. You can offer, you know, education. There's a lot of things that we can offer, even if we can't save the pet or, help the people even get through some of the tough things that they're going through. Mm. Yeah. I think that's that. Yeah. And Julie, I just want to say that I think that a lot of veterinarians um, not only have their own mental struggles, which I'd love to talk about, but they're yeah. also in a unique situation to see, I mean, some, some animal owners talk about their stuff <laughs> a lot <laughs> to the veterinarians more than than they would their healthcare provider because they trust. The I know I, I've, I've said that a lot at my hospital and, and it's kind of a joke, but it really isn't that we should all have to go through psychology courses to go through veterinary medicine. Cause I really think that that is a skill that would be helpful yes. because we are doing a lot of psychology. We're yeah. counseling people yeah, and we're not trained to do that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, a CSU required an undergraduate, a basic psychology degree, but that uh, degree, excuse me, course, one course. one course, you know, psych 101 or whatever. But it's yeah. like just barely like opening the door to that world. Right. And not really giving the skills. So may I share something for veterinarians? Yeah, absolutely. It's called mental health first aid. And it is, it's like first aid on the mental level. So you're giving the skills to create that sacred space, that open space to listen, and then just to provide just enough support. So they're your client, or maybe it's one of your staff, or maybe it's a loved one that you outside of work, you recognize that they're having a real mental challenge and um, giving them enough. So assess, just basically asking them in a very caring way, if you, if you, if it sounds like what they're sharing, are they at risk to themselves or others? And ask them then if they could use some outside support and then getting them into the professional hands. So getting them to a professional counselor. So mental health first aid, um, it's very cheap to go. It, it used to be a two day course, then it, they got it down to one day. And I know they're trying to condense it to something shorter. It's probably about six hours now. And, um, and I really think it should be offered at every veterinary continuing education conference, large conference, yeah. um, as part of, let's say like, you know, the 
Western CE and Nevada, you know, Las Vegas, right, you know, right. it'd be a really cool thing to have. Yes. And I've actually wanted to speak at a veterinary conference and do what's called case studies, you know, like both physicians and veterinarians love learning from real cases and you like, you give the signalment, you know, right. You give the presentation, what skill, you know, da -da. Mm -hmm. and then what would you do next? What diagnostic tests would you do and do it instead for you have an animal owner come in and there's really not much wrong with the animal. <laughs> They're sharing this. What would you do next? Yeah. Or maybe the animal is like, I had this happen when I was a large animal vet where I, this is one farm I would went to and I was like, oh my God, Julie, these animals were snow and neglected. And it's because they had a lot of stuff going on in them that they weren't yeah. addressing. And they were using the animals, even though they couldn't afford to feed them as their own therapy. And yet the animals were suffering. It was just like this really, oh, yeah, just think back that. about it and having to euthanize one. They said, it can't stand. I'm like, can't stand. Cause you're not feeding it. You're feeding it straw, you know, food, like, yeah. oh, so, um, so to go through that, um, and then, or it could be, you come in, you come into the practice and you notice your control substance log is off compared to what's in stock. Yeah. Um, Which is and, a big deal. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I think you and I discussed it before. Uh, one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to veterinarians and why I reached out to you for the podcast was because um, when I was a state public health veterinarian in Colorado, in Denver, one of my mentors before I went to vet school took his own life. Mm. And I went to the funeral, the memorial service, and just seeing that was just so you're at the funeral. So I was at the, the memorial service and just seeing the impact on the family members. Ugh, it's hard. Ooh, and he was mm -hmm. such a joyous man. And, and I remember these moments where I'd see him just making everybody in the clinic laugh. And then I'd see some darkness in him. Like he was really sad inside. Like, yeah. Wow. What's going on there? And he kind of reminded me of Robin Williams. Like that's how funny he was. And I actually met Robin Williams one time, a couple of times in person. And yeah. I could see how much he enjoyed making others joyous. And he had some really deep sadness in him. And I know we won't get into Rob Williams, but um, anyway, and then shortly after that, I shouldn't say anyway, whew, big breath. Right, whoa. right. It's hard to go through a suicide mm -hmm. for sure. So I go back to the office and I'm working away and I get the CDC's MMWR articles, which is it's like a weekly morbidity and mortality report. Like, can you get anything more dark and morbid title to a newsletter? But that's what right, it is. Right. And it's about an article about suicide rates and suicide ideation in veterinarians and how much higher it is than the general public. And so, and it, it sounds like I actually took that very personal on like, oh my gosh, you know, we're at the how highest risk and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it turns out it, looking at the literature, more recent literature, veterinarians are not in the top 25, even of occupations in terms of suicide rates. So percentages, right. but we are quite a bit higher. And so I'd like to pause and read an article, just like one little stat from an AVMA article. Yes. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Open it up. Let's see. And, um, so it's on, it's in the JAVMA news and it's looking at um, access to lethal means looked um, to lower veterinary suicide rates. Um, so veterinarians are, veterinarians have a higher rate of suicide than does the general population research says. But according to the most recent study, if suicide rates associ associated with pentobarbital, a drug commonly used for euthanasia of animals were not counted, veterinarians would mirror the general population in terms of suicide rates. Um, that makes sense. And there's a picture of Jen Brandt, PhD, Director of Wellbeing and Diversity Initiatives at the AVMA that she's, she's lecturing. Um, and QPR, oh, she was lecturing on QPR training. Oh, this is question, I'm trying to remember what QPR stands for. It's, uh, it has to do, it's a vet shorter than mental health first aid. And it's, it's also designed to do quick listening and referring um, so that you're, de you're de -es kind of a de-escalating strategy um, to uh, decrease the risk. As this is, which helps in identifying aiding individuals who may be at risk for suicide. Oh, here it goes. 
QPR stands for question, persuade, and refer. Yeah, so, I took a class in that. So yeah, that's you? very useful. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and how did you did you use it daily or? Well, I mean, obviously coaching people, I have to kind of be on my toes for people that need therapy or more medical help than life coaching, you know, because there's a big difference. And I talk about that a lot on the podcast. So that's something that as in my certification as a certified life coach, we have to have that kind of training so we can recognize if somebody's in trouble and they need something more. So we kind of go through that training each year to kind of stay on your toes because I had a therapist tell me once that it's not the people that talk about suicide that usually are the ones that do it. It's the ones that don't talk about it. Yeah. And I lost my own nephew to suicide. And that was kind of our experience as a family. Like nobody really knew. So um, yeah, it's something that that's a really, really difficult thing. But I think the more we talk about it and the more we are open to discussing it, the more we're going to help people get help, if that oh, makes sense. Julie. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing. And I'm second of all, I'm so sorry. For yeah, that loss. It's, it's hard on a family. It really is. I saw, mm -hmm. you know, what my sister went through losing her son and it, it's tough. Mm. Yeah, It's really a tough thing. So that's, you know. One of the reasons I do what I would do because we want to help people and mm -hmm. what you do, what you do, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, I think it's great that they uh, require QPR training. There's the coaching course I took. There was a, a component. They didn't call it QPR, but they trained us to recognize when, when a counselor is more appropriate than a coach and how to refer, right. doing the warm handoff. And I've definitely done that. And I, I want to curious, where did you, is QPR, is that something that your listeners could take and where did you take it? Oh gosh, I don't have it right near me, but I could, I could share it on another okay. podcast or, okay. or write it somewhere. Um, but yeah, it was pretty accessible. It was just an online thing and it wasn't even a very long, long course, if I remember correctly. So it's pretty easy to, to acquire. And I'm sure there's different places to take it too. Okay. But I think it's a really good idea, especially, you know, if you're working in a veterinary hospital with a lot of people, and this is something that our profession has a tendency to lean towards, it wouldn't be a bad thing for everybody to know about. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so the, the AVMA article states researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, look at mortality rates from suicide among 11,620 veterinarians who died from 1979 to 2015. They concluded that male veterinarians are 2.1 times as likely and female veterinarians were 3.5 times as likely to die from suicide as were members of the US general population. And these higher suicide mortality rates extended the entire 36 year period. And they actually have the JAVMA um, journal article citing there. Um, and the rest of the article um, talks about the method, which we won't go into for each. Um, and then uh, and then talks about phenobarbital and restricting the use. But I think you and I want to also talk about resources for veterinarians that are available um, in your state and in my state. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that if somebody knows somebody that's struggling or um, they're struggling themselves, that that is, that's something that we definitely want to promote is reaching out and getting help. Yeah. You know, we, we have the Michigan Veterinary Medical Association, and we have a thing called the A-Team that people can call in or write in and then get someone to help them and they, they're volunteer people if it's just like support needed. Um, but they also have a system where they can hook you up with therapy, co mostly therapy, I think, but mental health um, healers, I guess, or people that can work with you if you're having um, struggles. And so I think all of the state veterinary medical associations, I would imagine, and I know the AVMA has some resources that will help people if they reach out. And you said Colorado does as well? 
Yeah, um, CVMA, uh, Colorado Veteran Medical Association has a peer assistance services. Um, so, and their, their quote is, um, they provide services to veterinarians who are experiencing physical, emotional, psychological, or substance use problems. And um, they actually have a contract with, with a group called Peer Assistance Services. And the program is funded by license fees. So I think they want to remove the cost barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and the referral can come from a friend, a family member. So it doesn't have to be the veterinarian going themselves. It could be a friend or a family member, a colleague, supervisor. And this, the Colorado Board of Veterinary Medicine may, may uh, encourage the veterinarian to use that. And the calls are confidential. You don't need to give your name or the name of the individual. <clears throat> and they have, a, they have a phone number here, 24-hour information line to call and how to obtain those services. And then there's this beautiful testimonial there. Yeah, so I think just knowing that those resources are available and trying to encourage people to use them mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is part of our mission for sure. And then you teach a lot of techniques for your mm-hmm. um, spiritual emergence, but also your, you do yoga and meditation and things like that. Do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that or do you want to save sure, that sure. for another podcast? No, that's great. I, okay. yeah, so I am a holistic health life and spiritual coach because we all want to be healthy in mind, body, and spirit. So whether a person is a veterinarian, a doctor, uh, having an awakening or not, I basically do a holistic assessment and I ask them if, if it, if in their whole, what I call a circle of life tool that I use, if I see that spirituality is something they want to tap into and prove, um, I'm trained to help them go deep into their spiritual path. That's right for them and practices, um, so they can get through, um, the challenges of life. Um, so at the beginning of each one of my sessions, I, uh, give it as an option. And after a while, everybody wants it. I do a, a um, brief guided meditation with, with pranayama, which is breath work. And, it, um, I experimented for a while to see like how the sessions would go with or without that guided meditation at the beginning. And they always were deeper. It seemed that the intuition of the client grew, they were able to more comfortable too, because the parasympathetic system was kicked in. They were able to share from a more calm, centered, grounded place. And um, they came up with their, you know, I supported them through open-ended questionings and diving deep with them about what areas of the life we want to address first and what tools they already have. And then I support them in creating goals around that. It's probably very similar to what you do, Julie. Now, let's say someone is going through a, a pretty rapid spiritual awakening and they're spiritually exploring. I support them in doing that in a grounded way. And, um, and if they are having something that an experience that is a little too rapid, um, and they actually need a counselor, like a spiritual emergency, which is what I had. Mine was clinical depression and a spiritual awakening. It turned a spiritual emergency and it went to an extreme spiritual emergency, which is basically a psychological and spiritual crisis at the same time. And it, you basically go through almost like a series of of death and rebirth in terms of who you think you are and re and then recreating your life and all that. So mine was so profound. I had to have a counselor. And so I can recognize when someone's having that extreme experience and I'm a bridge to get to them into the right counselor so that they are being supported in a way where they're not made, made to feel crazy. Now, some people actually might need to be put in a hospital, but some people go into are being put into the institutions. And that's, I'm really lucky. I, started sharing with my traditional counselor some of the experience. I was like, is it normal to have like euphorias? Like you're having these like beautiful, it's almost like having sensual experiences that we have in private <laughs> as you're coming out of depression. And she's looking at me like, what? And I was like, never mind. And I was like, oh Lord, if I shared with her what I'm experiencing, I would have been an institution. And I was taking the spiritual emergence coaching course now there's a lot that happens to a lot of people. They're put on meds and they're made to think they're crazy. And, and so, but some people might need to be put in an institution for a little while. Um, so I'm not saying that there isn't time for medication and proper care, but um, you don't always need that. Yeah. So 
it's really lovely. I absolutely love when people are like, I've already tried counselors. I'm like, well, have you really found the right one? It's almost like finding your partner, you know, it's kind of good for the process. You have to find someone that you can talk to openly and you trust. Yep. I think that's important for sure. Yes. And do they have the right skills for whatever you're going through as well? You know, all those three things, what you said, and then having that. So I love, um, I have a list of counselors that have deep spiritual competency. And sometimes I'll just, after a couple of sessions, I'll go, I think you need. And so my favorite clients are ones that were like, I help them get into, into the hands of the correct counselor. And they're alternating between a session with the counselor and then a session with me. And I make sure not to override. I'm like, so how how did it go with the counselor? Like, I don't want to interrupt any work that they're doing with you. And then I help them move forward, making goals and I keep them accountable. So, you know, a counselor you have a session with, they're not going to be checking on you and sending you like texts and emails. And uh, you've got 12 sessions with me over the next six months. It's just, it takes, you know, them going, hopefully before the session ends, let's create a plan. Let's make your next appointment. I did have a traditional counselor that did that with me really well. Um, but a lot of counselors aren't there that like a coach is, uh, where you have a long term relationship and you're keeping them accountable and moving forward instead of just spinning in the past. Right. And I think a lot of counselors are recognizing that and starting to take coaching courses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a really good marriage of, of two different skills the therapy and the coaching. I think that that's, what's exciting about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and then there's some people that have such dramatic spiritual waking, they just need to be with a counselor and then I'll support them on the other side to help them recreate their life. Um, but I really, basically, um, I put on yoga and meditation retreats and workshops. Um, and so I have a piece of land here in the mountains and, um, so far I haven't been putting on big retreats. It's more like workshops at yoga studios that are a couple hours long. Mm-hmm. And then I had this woman fly in and she's like, I want to do a retreat with you. I'm like, I don't have a retreat set up right now. <laughs> so, um, I created a whole itinerary, um, for her and, um, some of it was yoga and meditation with me. Um, some of it was spending some time in nature together, like us going for hikes and just kind of like connecting with the five senses and being the healing nature. Um, and then powerful coaching one-on-one and in beautiful yeah. natural settings. Yeah. And so I love doing that. Um, it's very rewarding. And some people will come on a retreat and that'll be it. And some people will want to coach with me long-term three to six months. Um, and a lot of, a lot of us, every one of us struggles with bad habits. And so they'll either walk away with a deep self-care plan they'll need to implement on their own or they will uh, want support from me to shift those habits through accountability and continuing um, sessions. So that's what I do. And I, I just love yoga and meditation. It's, they're both very healing. And, um, and most of my clients just absolutely love it. That's what I tend to draw in, so. Awesome, that's exciting. Well, maybe um, because this podcast is probably getting a little bit long, maybe we could get together again what I'd, re- what I'd really love is for you to teach us some m- maybe short meditations or some skills that we can share on the podcast or something that people can use yep. in order, you know, especially if they're, if they're getting um, high anxiety or, you know, a lot of people deal with the um, thoughts that they're not good enough, that self, you know, care would help kind of thing, you know, or if they're having that imposter syndrome before they go into an exam room, like it's really helpful. And I talk about this with my clients. Sometimes you have to take those little tiny short breaks in order to get yourself back in line. And I think that that would be really interesting if you could talk about some of those things that you would recommend that people do. Is that something you could speak to? Do you think? love to do that a little guided meditation with, um, what we call yeah. those as affirmations is what we call that my spiritual path where, yeah. Can we do that on a podcast? Like, can we have a podcast where we do some of that? I'd love Obviously that, people really. can't listen when they're driving then if they're going to meditate, <laughs> you'd have to be home when you listen. So anybody <laughs> yes. out there, if we end up doing this, don't, don't listen in your car. Cause we're going to try to mellow you out and help you, uh, help you meditate. So yeah, I would love to do that and talk a little bit more about your yoga and maybe your retreats. Cause I think that that would be something really powerful. I've been on a couple retreats. Um, and it, it is, it's super powerful to go and, and learn some of these skills. Okay.
So yeah, I'd love that to sounds talk great. I'd love to do that. All right. So we'll do that again. We'll, we'll promise we'll have, we'll have to set that up, but tell people where they can find you their your website and anything else you want to say that we didn't say tonight today. No, just, just thanking all the veterinarians and the family members who are listening for continuing to serve um, both animals and humans in a powerful way and know that there are resources um, out there for you and you are divine souls for doing the work you do. And thank you. No, I love veterinarians. They're <laughs> yeah. the best, right? Yeah. And their families, because they all, yeah. the families, we know the families have to support us a lot. Yes. Yes. Right? It's brought the whole family for sure. Let's see. So my webpage is Elizabeth with an S instead of a Z. So it's like E Lisa Beth lava.com. And if you can't remember my name, you can also find the webpage by B. And I always think bees are miracles. So B true you.com will also take you there. My book is there. It ends with a list of resources for those who might be having a dramatic, uh, you know, mental health check. Um, yeah. Hope to connect with some of you in collaboration with, with Julie. Thank you. Oh, can you, Elizabeth, can you say that last little part again? Cause you froze up when you were talking about mental health challenge. Do you okay. remember what you said? Mm -hmm. Okay. So at the end of my book, there's a list of resources for those of you who might be having a dramatic mental health challenge that turns into a spiritual awakening. Um, there's about seven pages there and each link opens you up to a world of a whole nother list of resources. So um, please take a look. Um, I, I do a webinar monthly on that type of, basically it's called when transformation turns, when transformation turns into a crisis. And I am uh, going to go through the resources at the back of the book more thoroughly than I could do on a podcast or just by people looking at the book. And so if you're interested in that, you can just uh, send me an email or a text, both of my email and my uh, cell phone are on that, um, because that's uh, something that takes a whole nother hour to go into. Awesome. That's so exciting. Well, I thank you so much for being here today. It was so fun meeting you. This is the second time we've talked and I loved every minute. So I hope we can do it again and maybe teach some uh, guided meditation and do some other things. Maybe talk a little bit about yoga and other things that you would talk about at your retreat. Thank Sounds you. great. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, for being here. Pleasure. Have a beautiful week, everyone. Bye. Bye, Elizabeth. Hey, friends, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Dr. Elizabeth Lava. And last week with Dr. Joanne Connolly, I am always looking for veterinarians with interesting background stories, interesting interests, interesting career paths for the podcast. So if you know anyone that fits that bill and you want to recommend them to come on the podcast with me, you can send me an email at jacapeldvm at gmail.com. And don't forget to leave me a five-star review if you like what you're hearing on the podcast. Go to Apple Podcasts and just leave me a review or write something, which would be even better. I would love to hear from you. Or if you don't want to make a comment in public, you can also send me an email or leave me a comment on Instagram. I've got a Facebook page, anywhere that's easy for you to get to that you'd like to leave me a comment. I'd really appreciate it. If you have been listening for a while and you've been holding yourself back from coaching, don't be shy. Reach out for free coaching on my website at juliecapel.com or veterinarylifecoach.com. You can sign up to talk to me over Zoom uh, for free and coach on a little issue that you have. Or if you want to try coaching, I have coaching packages that you can sign up for. And my schedule is getting a little bit crowded right now. So if you've been hesitating and procrastinating, just take that first step and reach out and get a hold of me and um, get on my calendar because I'm very excited to meet every veterinarian out there and help you with all of the tools that I've learned and get you going in the right direction because we all need someone in our corner, right? Also on my website, you can sign up for my Wednesday Weekly Words, which is just a little email that I send out every Wednesday morning with just some words of encouragement. So if you like to read a little something in your email box that's not spam, you can get that email from me by just putting your website or your email address on my website and I'll send it to you every Wednesday morning.
And as always, if you have any questions or problems and you're afraid to talk to me face to face, you can always send me an email. I'd love to read it and I'd love to respond. And if I can help you in, in any way, I would love to do that. So go out there and try to embrace some of the techniques that Dr. Lava talked about this week and Dr. Connolly talked about last week. And next week, it'll probably just be me talking about something. I haven't quite decided yet. So listen to next week's podcast and have a beautiful, exciting week. Bye.